for the Daily Double. This contestant holds the highest two-day score ever recorded on the quiz show Jeopardy. The answer is Watson. Oh, and by the way, he's not human. Watson is a deep question answering machine created by IBM who was introduced to the world in a nationally televised Jeopardy exhibition, which he won handily. But he wasn't always so smart. Today we'll hear from Professor Willie Shee about his case entitled Building Watson, Not So Elementary, My Dear. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you're listening to Cold Call. So we are all sitting there in the classroom. The professor walks in. And, and they look up and you know it's coming. Oh, the dreaded cold call. Professor Shee is an expert in manufacturing and product development who has written numerous articles, cases, and papers on the topic. He also spent 28 years in industry at some of the largest technology firms in the world, including, of course, IBM. Which brings us to the case at hand. Willie, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Can you start by telling us how this case opens? Like, what's the sort of opening scenario here? Well, the opening of the case is Dave Ferrucci, who is the protagonist in the case, sitting in the audience at that Jeopardy contest where Watson was pitted against the all-time human champions in the game. Mm -hmm. So the case opens with uh, a final Jeopardy question for game one. In the category U.S. cities, the question was, its largest airport is named for a World War II hero, the second largest for a World War II battle. Now, Dave Ferrucci is in the audience watching his machine answer, what is Toronto, which, of course, is the wrong answer. And Ferrucci looks to Eric Brown, who's another one of the protagonists in the case, and he immediately realizes he's going to have a lot of questions that he has to answer to management as to how the machine could come up with such an obviously wrong answer mm -hmm. in this high-stakes contest. Yeah. This is an unusual kind of case for HBS. There's a lot of technology elements to it. Uh, and I'm wondering what prompted you to write it. What, what interested you in it? Well, the case is fundamentally about product development. And how do you do product development uh, in some of these uh, very technology-intensive areas where you have very ambitious goals? What prompted us to write the case was looking at the choice of Jeopardy as a target for this design. Was it a good choice or was it a bad choice? Uh, and what might that tell us about complex product development processes? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And give us a little insight into, you spent a lot of time at IBM. I, I'd, I'd like to know, how does an idea like Watson ever get started there? And what's in it for them? Well, I think that's one of the real questions in the case because, you know, on the one hand, you look at Watson and you say, well, is this really a directly commercializable product? You know, why would somebody in the research division pick something like this as a target? Isn't it kind of a corner case because playing Jeopardy, you have a lot of specialized roles, you have a lot of terminology, you have puns, you have plays on words and things like that. And you say, well, you know, is it generally applicable, right? On the other hand, what the Jeopardy goal, winning Jeopardy with a machine uh, does, is this synthesizes a lot of goals into a very visible and easily understood target for the, both the development team and for IBM management. Mm -hmm. If you talk to a Dave Ferrucci or Eric Brown, who are protagonists in the case, they would say, you know, Jeopardy is this kind of broad, open domain type question answering 
right? And picking that as a target would force you into the development of very generalizable methods, right? Jeopardy uses very complex language. It requires high contextual understanding, and it has to rely on often, uh, you know, imprecise constructs, right? So in order to be able to accurately assess confidence in the answers, you'd have to have a pretty capable system, right? So this is kind of a harder target than just doing something that was very orderly. You know, you had to be fast. It was a very competitive situation. So as a product development target, uh, it had a certain appeal. There were some other aspects of it as well. First of all, by kind of committing to uh, play the best humans in a live contest on television, that provides a lot of pressure on the development team, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very easily understood target. It kind of defines the schedule for you, okay? And it's kind of a grand challenge problem. And it makes it very easy for the whole team to rally around. It had this additional appeal of committing management to it. Because once you publicly state you're going to do something like that, management is committed, and it really rallies the team around making that target. It synthesizes a lot of things into an easily understood goal, so uh, from a product development strategy standpoint, it was an interesting approach. Yeah. Can we dig into Watson a little bit? How would you define what Watson is? Watson is a question-answering system that is made up of many different subsystems, which will evaluate many different possible answers to the questions and then determine its confidence level in uh, proposing the right answer. Mm-hmm. And they ran into some interesting challenges with Watson, uh, you know, the Toronto response being one, but the underlying problems there had to do with the way humans sort of process this kind of information and, and helping Watson to, to process it in a similar way? Well, yeah, and I, th- I think that's one of the challenges is because IBM's interest here was really in natural language processing. And natural language, as you and I use it, is filled with a lot of ambiguities. And in in fact, in the case of Jeopardy is probably one of the more difficult cases of having to sort out ambiguities because the game features such heavy uses of plays on words and Mm -hmm. puns and so on. They had to design a system that could handle this very sophisticated interpretation of what the question was and then figuring out through use of a lot of data what the possible answers were, and then proposing the best answer. And it turns out, I'm going to oversimplify this, but um, junk in, junk out, right? I mean, the the quality of the content turned out to be critically important. When Watson was going to be playing live contestants, it could not be connected to the Internet. Therefore, the IBM team had Mm -hmm. to really have a very broad search on their data sources and uh, then be able to assess the different uh, probabilities for the different answers and create a confidence score that would uh, tell them how much confidence Watson had in the answer. Yeah. And the the notion of confidence in a machine is an interesting thing. I don't know that many people would think about whether your computer is confident in the information it's providing you. And I think that was one of the very interesting innovations in this program as they developed it, which was the the whole notion of rendering explicit the level of confidence that the machine had in the answer. You and I, when we answer in class, uh, do the same thing subconsciously, right? We have 
some notion of how confident we are in the answer, and we, we will make that judgment. In the case of Watson, it actually rendered that explicit. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about uh, Dave and his team. Uh, you know, what, what kinds of challenges did he encounter managing a team of scientists and engineers? Well, I think Dave had a very interesting situation because he had been with this team at IBM Research for a long time. And IBM Research has a very strong heritage in doing the, the basic science work, if you will. So they, they had been going along for many years on natural language processing. He came to the realization that the team had kind of leveled out in the progress that they were making. And I think the key insight for Dave Ferrucci was recognizing that their progress had stalled and how to break out to the next level of innovation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that revolved around picking this visible public target and then changing the organization's way of working so that they could kind of break out of that stall. And there's a lesson there for people who are leading uh, creative teams or teams that are charged with R&D in any industry. This applies broadly. Right. And I think it's really about how do you generate breakthroughs? How do you recognize when the established way of working has taken you as far as you can and you need to do something different? There's a great uh, scene in the case where you describe Dave bringing the team into his office kind of one by one. Can you walk us through that? One of the things Ferrucci realized was that people were working on a very incremental way and they were working in their own silos. In the case, Ferrucci talks about people coming into his office and everybody explaining, well, uh, I talked to somebody else and they told me this, and Ferrucci would pick up the phone and call them and said, no, wait a minute, can you come into my office? And the next thing you knew... Everybody was in Ferrucci's office when he came to the realization that maybe the way they were organized was inhibiting communications across the team. And what they, in fact, really needed to do was facilitate that communications. So what they then did is moved everybody into the same room, changed the organizational structure, and changed the pattern of communication among people to speed that up. And that, that turned out to be a step function change in their progress, because after they did that, they uh, really started bringing up a lot of fresh ideas. And it goes to this notion of innovation being driven by cross-boundary interaction. So once he broke down all those walls, Mm. it really helped their communication a lot. It seems uh, so logical, yet I think so many organizations, and I can speak from personal firsthand experience, uh, you know, breaking down silos is a difficult thing to do. Well, many people who study innovation will say the best innovations are always cross-boundary. We kind of all know that, but it's so easy to fall into your established ways of working, and it's so difficult to make those changes because mm-hmm. most people are relatively conservative about changing their way of working. Has this had any impact more broadly at IBM and how they think about structuring teams that do this kind of work? I, I think it has because it was a good example of uh, kind of a breakout strategy, both the way of working, the kind of cross-boundary interaction, and kind of this moonshot approach of picking big, ambitious targets, Mm -hmm. publicly committing to them, and then going for them. 
we had the the great opportunity to have Watson come here to HBS a couple of years ago and take on some students from Harvard Business School and from the Sloan School at MIT. Uh, that was an exciting moment. You must have enjoyed that. Yes, and a- actually the original genesis for this case is uh, my friend at IBM, who is uh, now the chief technical officer of the company, when Watson first came out, called me up. His name was Bernie Myerson. He called me up and said, uh, Willie, we'd like to offer a Watson contest at the school. And my reaction to Bernie is I said, well, Bernie, that would be fun, but we'll actually learn a lot more if what we do is first look at the product development case, mm-hmm. have the students go through that, and then then we'll have the contest. When the time came for the contest, I was already familiar with how well Watson was doing. So uh, I negotiated a deal with the IBM team. I said, you know, okay, you want to have Watson pitted against an HBS student and a Sloan student. Let's make it a little more of an even match. How about if you allow us to have teams? Mm. So we had a team of three HBS students, and MIT Sloan offered up a team of three students. So it was three versus three versus Watson the machine. Yeah. And uh, the HBS students did a very good job. We they had, had a lead for, <laughs> for a fleeting moment there, didn't they? Uh, the, the HBS team, to their credit, two of them had actually been on Jeopardy. Ah. Okay, so starting about a month before the actual contest, they got together and started practicing mm-hmm. and rehearsing. And because they did that preparation, uh, they had a strategy for playing this game, and they understood the game well enough that they realized the criticality of buzzing in quickly. Yeah. Right. So there was a brief moment where the HBS team had a lead. Uh, I was sitting next to a whole rank of IBM executives who had come in <laughs> for the contest, and I can assure you they were sweating for a moment thinking, Oh, my goodness, the HBS <laughs> team could beat Watson. But then when it came to the final betting, Watson did pass them a little bit. I'm yeah. proud to say the HBS team uh, represented the school very well. That's good. That's good. It was a, The house was rocking, so to speak, yes. when Watson was there. Does this have implications for other kinds of uh, machines that we interact with? Well, I, I think Watson is emblematic of a revolution that we're seeing in terms of the use of big data and machine learning as decision support aids for humans. Uh, Where Watson is going is actually of great interest to many of us here at HBS because we're looking at the applications of big data and this cognitive computing and machine learning in other fields, particularly areas where you have a lot of unstructured data like healthcare. These machine learning techniques are gonna have very important implications for helping humans understand areas where there are vast amounts of data that have to be mined with some kind of cognitive processing and some kind of machine learning approach. Mm -hmm. But Watson will never take over the earth, you know, take over all of our machines. People might be afraid of this kind of intelligence that's amassed in Watson. Well, I think in the end, these things will be assistance to people. These machines will be tools that will allow us to exploit the knowledge that is contained within large amounts of data. I'm actually not worried about them taking over. (laughs) 
You heard it from Willie Shee. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. You can find this case along with thousands of others in the Harvard Business School Case Collection at hbr.org. I'm Brian Kenny. Thanks for listening to Cold Call, the official podcast of Harvard Business School.